mean, I was lucky enough to hang out with Richard Branson on Necker Island. I paid money to be there. It's not like he's my friend and invited me, but I paid money and I got there and I went up to him and I said, uh, I was just talking. He said, you know, people say I'm lucky. I said, why is that? So Richard, he said, because I got out of the record business right before it tanked and got into the airline business. And I said, oh, that's cool. And he said, but you know, the truth is I did get lucky, but the only way you win in life is you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky. So I've been lucky many times. The only way you win in life is with some luck and you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky. And if you're working for the man and you don't invest in anything, how do you ever position yourself to get lucky? You have to be lucky, but you have to go all in on something. I I think you should only be learning, working for knowledge or equity. And the only reason you should be working for a paycheck is if the paycheck's big enough to go buy equity. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is episode 100. It's quite the milestone for the show, 100 episodes and 100 millionaires interviewed. We've done several interviews for various media outlets over the last two years and have been on numerous podcasts. And one of the common questions is, what have you learned from interviewing all these millionaires? On next week's episode, we're going to discuss these and give an update on the show and some exciting things we have planned for the show for the future. On last week's episode, we had Diane. She is an engineer by trade and now teaches engineering. She has a net worth of $5.5 million and has a remarkable and inspiring story of saving and investing over time to get to where she is today, despite not ever making more than $82,000. Before we get into today's interview, I just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identifies stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. We appreciate all of you tuning into the podcast week after week. If you enjoy the show, we'd appreciate you leaving a five-star review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Also, we'd love to share your financial story or your millionaire journey. Our goal is to get a broad list of guests and stories. So if you'd like to be on the show as a millionaire interviewee or one close to millionaire status, please reach out to us. Our email again is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So today, to celebrate the 100th episode, we have David, who has built a nine-figure net worth. It's $100 million for episode 100. David has a very inspiring story and has a lot of good advice around mindset and surrounding oneself with like-minded individuals. He is most likely the most purposeful person I know, especially when it comes to goal setting. So let's welcome David to episode 100. David, do you mind just giving us a little bit about your background for our listeners that may not know you? Sure, I'm very happy to. I'm a 
I'm a U.S. citizen that was raised overseas. So I spent most of my childhood in England and Germany because my dad was based over there in military, uh, you know, bases around the uh, the U.S. and I'm around Germany and uh, England. He ultimately ended up at the embassy with a pretty cush little job as the military attache, where he was like the ambassador for the army to England. So we had a nice, you know. $20 million house in London that was owned by the government, of course, and we had chauffeurs, but I'm 12, 11, 13 at this time. So uh, I'm not I'm not like really appreciating that, of course, uh, came back to the United States when he retired after 30 years of service at age. I think he was 50 and I was 14, came back to Austin, Texas. My dad was from San Antonio, went to school in Austin. Now, I'd been raised in English schools, which are kind of like military schools. We had uniforms, we boarded, we had capital punishment or sorry, corporal punishment. Let's not make it mistake there, but we had corporal punishment. We got spanked with a size 17 trainer whenever we screwed up. Uh, so I come back to America to, again, my folks believed in private schools. The private schools were a little bit uh, le- more lenient and I was a little bit of a rebel. So I ended up getting in quite a bit of trouble in Austin, got thrown out of a few high schools was kind of a rebel without a clue. Started working as a lawn mowing guy. I mean, I did other jobs. I was a bagger. Then I was a, uh, I always used to be one of the best workers, but I'd get fired for my adi- for my surly attitude often. Went to work for myself. Obviously, I can't fire myself. Started a lawn mowing company. Had three trucks working for me. I'm 17 years old, made 20 grand. I'm still not a great student, but I'm making bank. And so I was happy about that. Make a long story shorter, I go to college. I'm mediocre all the way through college, get out with a 2.3 GPA, worked my whole way through college and enjoyed the work. Went to work at a sales company selling computer systems, was the top salesperson on and off in that journey, but had a conflict with my boss. Surprise, surprise. So I quit that job after a year and sold everything I owned and went hitchhiking around the world for two years. I came back from that journey and went to work for my mom. I didn't mean to. I told her I'd never work for her. She was a realtor. So when my dad retired, she went and got into real estate. And I said, I'll never be in real estate. But I went to work for her temporarily to pay off my credit card. I was minus 1500 in net worth at that point, living with my folks again, 20 how old was I then? 26 years old, I think. That could be right. It was 97, uh, 95. Yeah, so 26, 27, something like that. Got into real estate, sold a buddy a house, made 5,000 bucks. I thought, man, this is great. I love this business. I love this job. I get to drive around with people I like, sell houses, and get paid. After three years, I was bored to death of it. I was, you know, at least there was no paycheck, no boss. I was free, but uh, I was tired of saying the same script on the same street the second or third time on the same day, driving people around to look at houses. I was very lucky to be at a company growing very fast called Keller Williams. My mom was the fifth agent there. I was the about the 800th. Today, there's 180,000. So they were looking for people to expand, to grow franchises. I put my hand up, uh, went up to North Texas with my folks uh, backing me financially and with my own money, every penny I had, and started opening franchises. Very lucky again that I was young and probably 29 years old at this time and just you know, no family responsibilities, nothing to hold me down, pretty risk tolerant personality. So I just went all in and I started opening franchises. I was terrible at it for many, many years, but I got better over time. The company got better over time. They were very good at training and and people development. And ultimately I built, you know, one of the top five real estate companies in the United States with a lot of great people that work with me. And, um, we are, we sell about 12 billion a year in real estate, about 37,000 transactions. Uh, So that was part of the journey. And then as you get into real estate, as you guys know, or many of your listeners may know, there's all kinds of offshoots. So I ended up starting a private equity firm that invests in single family rentals. I bought a hundred myself. I bought and sold close to a thousand homes in the downturn, started investing in distressed debt, 
along the way of this journey, I met a beautiful lady called Tracy, and she put up with all my BS and all my uh, uh, entrepreneurial madness for many, many years. So we settled into each other and had a family, and we have two kids. I have another kid uh, that was part of my adventurous youth who's amazing and also, and she lives in Denver. So I have a family of three, a beautiful wife, and an incredible life. A few years ago, we created a motivational group called GoBundance. Uh, for years, I've had accountability partners, but we created a tribe, if you will. And it was a tribe for people that want to have an exceptional life to come together where exceptional is the new normal. That tribe is called GoBundance. And we just released our book, Tribe of Millionaires, a couple weeks ago that uh, we're just trying to help create a support environment for people that don't fit into the normal boxes of the universe. Um, so that's kind of a me in a nutshell. Yeah, no, appreciate it. And, and I've gotten to know David a little bit more on a personal level, and he's, he's got a phenomenal story. David, what would you say would be one or two key lessons that you learned from your childhood that have kind of propelled your success to where you are today? Okay. And I want to emphasize this. This is the, a really important point because I sound confident and I sound like that's my story, but I want to go back now and give you the color. The color is I was shy. I was not a great athlete. I wasn't pop, you know, I wasn't unpopular or popular in school. I was just right in the middle. Um, I felt like I procrastinated, even though I have this story that I can now look back and create and see the tracks. Yes, I was rebellious. That probably served me in the long run because I didn't fit in the box too easily. If I'd fit in the box, maybe I'd gone down a more traditional way of building a career and being, you know, pigeonholed by society and life like it does. But there's no way I was this cool, confident kid in high school or college. I was kind of finding my way through it all. So I think it's very important to realize that in spite of the completeness of sounding of the story, the experience of it was goofy and, you know, funky and full of all kinds of foggy moments and un un insecurity and uncertainty. And I say that because I think that's where almost all of us start. Nobody starts off like, uh, you know, some, maybe few do, but most of us don't start off by like fire breathing dragons with our life completely together. And on top of everything, there are a few, I've seen them in high school and maybe the quarterback of your high school football team, but not me. Okay. Uh, but the one lesson I got from that is I never really quit on me. Like I see some people just get defeated by life. And I saw this in family members and friends where they're like, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to put, go to work. I'm going to mail it in. I'm going to, I'm going to nine to five it. I'm going to get a paycheck. I'm going to have a great weekend. I'm going to have a great life and adios ambition and purpose. I, I never quit on me. I never quit on this idea that I could have something different in my life, something uh, not, you know, above the normal, something that was exceptional. And so I never quit on me in spite of all the goofiness and the failure and the pain and the, and the suffering. I always found a way forward. And then the second thing is, even though I was a lesson is, uh, even though I was a terrible student in high school and college, and I wish I could go back and change that because once I got into business for myself, even single family sales as a residential agent, you start to learn that exactly what you learn, you can apply to life. And so when I learned a better script, I became a better salesperson. When I learned to overcome my fear of knocking on doors at that computer sales company, I got better results. So I had to walk right past the no solicitation sign, go up to the, you know, the secretary, as we called him back then, and say, wow, you have the prettiest dress on. Um, who's in charge of sales here? Who, who's in charge of acquisitions? So you know, I think putting myself in a learning-based mode for business, for life, has really transformed everything in my life. So never quitting on myself and then realizing there's always something new you can learn that can transform your relationship, your health, your business. Uh, I think those are probably the two foundational pieces I got from my younger days. Awesome. And just for our listeners that maybe that aren't aware, David has two other books out, Wealth Can't Wait and Miracle Morning Millionaires. I've read both, both really good stuff and, and uh, great advice all around. So recommend those. 
So David, at 2627, you said you have a net worth of negative 1500. So as much as you're comfortable sharing here, where are you at today? And, and kind of how is that built along the way? So I have this theory. And uh, my theory is this, like if economically, if you're looking at an economic scoreboard, if your uh, net worth is 100,000, then you're a six out of 10. If, you're, if your net worth is a million, you're a seven out of 10. If your net worth is 10 million, you're an eight out of 10. If your net worth is 100 million, you're a nine out of 10. And if you're a billionaire, you're a 10 out of 10, right? So this is just a scoreboard I have. It's completely made up. It's completely arbitrary. There's so much luck and chance and different things that go into wealth. So it's very unfair to lay this across. But there's also a lot of luck and chance that goes into being a great basketball player. Not everyone's born seven foot tall or six foot eight with incredible athleticism. There's a lot of luck. And, and you know, so everything has that. So this is just my scoreboard for how to be, you know, how you could be economically in the United States. By the way, if you're born in Europe, it's probably 10 times harder to achieve the level of success we can achieve in, in America just because of the taxes and the regulations. If you're born in Russia, it's 100 times harder. If you're born in, you know, uh Uganda, it's a thousand times harder. So we, but this is just my scoreboard for the United States. So based on that, I've come from minus 1500 net worth to, you know, cl pretty close to a nine out of 10 would be somewhere around there. Um, all of it is arbitrary though. It's uh, half of my wealth is in businesses that have a valuation that goes up and down with the economy. I was way down in 2008, 2009 when everything was tanking because again, all my businesses went their profits went down 60, 70%. So if half of my net worth is a multiple based on profit, it's just an arbitrary number. It's like the stock market could affect it. Um, and then what happened in the downturn is actually I was scared that I was losing the game of real estate of wealth. And so I got very aggressive on buying assets uh, in the downturn. I bought a bunch of single family homes. I bought a bunch of, you know, a decent amount of apartments not, and I bought a bunch of distressed debt, a bunch for me anyway. And, um, and then when the market tanked topped back up like it was a v-shaped recovery which i didn't expect at all i don't think a lot of people did i thought we we're gonna have a long slow recovery uh but it shot right back up but because i was so active really in 9 10 11 12 13 14 all those new assets i bought came up a lot and then all the old assets i bought recovered a lot so all of a sudden i was at a new a new level and i kind of think around 14 2014 15 i was like wow i'm i'm actually pretty exceptionally wealthy now, but it didn't come from like some great plan to be, you know, at the nine or eight or nine level of wealth. It just came from um, staying aggressive, staying active, uh, being fully engaged in the game, learning all the time, seminars, books, reading, and then just this awareness. I mean, when you're in the game and you're fully engaged, like I was just aware in a big, big way around 2011, I was like, wow, the, all these assets are mispriced. I should buy every single one that I can. And, and I, in hindsight, I remember analyzing three different, uh, three deals with my, one of my partners at the time. And man, we were just going, which one should we buy? We were stressing ourselves out. We picked one. It did great. But in hindsight, it didn't matter. I, I turned, I do remember in the middle of the analysis, turning to my buddy, I said, it doesn't, we should buy all three of them, but we couldn't, we didn't have enough capital. And all three of them, I'm sure did excellent. The one we did, did excellent. And, um, so yeah, I've done very well. I've got plenty of passive income in my tribe, Go Abundance. Uh, we talk about being a hundred percenter and a hundred percenter is where a hundred percent of your needs to be financially free come from your passive income or your, you know, what we call it horizontal income because vertical is one stream of income that you can raise by your efforts, but horizontal is like a whole bunch of income streams. I have probably 150 income streams. If you count each single family as one, if you count, I have my single families in seven LLCs. So if you count them that way, then I've probably got 57 streams of income. Now that would include like one apartment complex that I might own 20% of. It could include, you know, 17 franchises, 
but based on that, I'm, I'm probably a 360 percenter, which means I've got 3.6 times what I need coming in from my passive income sources, not from any paycheck or any earned income. And by the way, I did stretch my lifestyle a lot. I lived way below my means for many, many, many years. Uh, but when I had that realization around 13 or 14, uh, 2013, 2014, which is what, five years ago, I'm now in my late 40s at that time. And I'm like, you know, I can live larger. I probably can't spend all this money in this lifetime. So I started living larger and I stretched my personal expenses up quite a bit. So if I if I lived any way reasonably, I'd be about a 700, 800 percenter. Yeah, that's awesome. David, as it relates to your net worth and kind of the market in general, do you look at technology and, and the opportunity oh. that technology might place, you know, in our lives as a disruptor to some of the businesses that you own? And do you change values based on that at all? I am a very aware of technology. I don't know it. I, I did sell computer systems back when I was a kid. And the reason I got out of it, I mean, I'm like uh, at that time, 23 years old, and I'm door to door sales for computer systems for an IBM affiliate. And these 15 year old kids come in and they know more about it than me. I'm like, I, I don't want to be in a business where I have to read trade magazines every week to keep up with what's going on in the industry. So I kind of let the tech go. Uh, Gary Keller, who's my mentor and is a billionaire, he's very, very committed to tech. And I'm really proud and impressed to watch him so, go so far in. And I know a lot of people that are in tech. So I've got it in my outer circle. Me personally, I'm not trying to fill my brain with things I don't understand. I'm very aware um, that my residential real estate practice could be threatened by technology. And I'm just, you know, keeping my personal guarantees to a bare minimum, keeping my overhead low, trying to invest in the agents uh, through our coaching and training to be the best they can be, developing, you know, opportunities for our agents also to invest alongside us in deals that come along and, you know, doing everything we can to support the agent, which is our job as broker owners, and then personally building a lot of assets that can't be disintermediated. No one's going to out-tech a rental property, I don't think, not yet anyway. And so, again, that's my way of managing tech. I, I, I've occasionally dabbled in putting my own money into tech, and I've pretty much lost every time and realized that I don't understand it. it it's the craziest thing for me as a traditional businessman to see an Uber or a uh, even Amazon or any of them lose money for 30 years and then become the most valuable company in the world or whatever it is. Like, it's amazing. I'm proud of them. I think it's beautiful to watch, but it's not what I can do. So I just stick to my bread and butter. I try to be the Ichiro Suzuki of business. I just want to be the all-time base hits winner. I'm not trying to get any home runs. Um, so yeah, I'm aware of tech. I watch it. I read the articles and I'm just trying to figure out what's going to come up. I haven't, you know, right now there's plenty of room for everybody. When we showed up as Keller Williams, people were like, are you guys going to take over the industry? And we're like, well, no, we're going to do very, very well, but there's still always going to be a Remax. There's still always going to be a Cobalt Banker. There's always going to be a space for everybody. So far, the tech has taken a piece of the market, just like we did when we showed up from nowhere, but they haven't yet come up with a model that replaces the relationships, you know, and people just don't sell their homes enough. And older people like me, like I still use agents. I'm sure there's a cheaper way I could do it, but frankly, I'd rather save the time and the hassle of trying to market it myself and just have an agent take care of it for me and get paid a professional fee. So probably commissions are going to compress, probably costs are going to have to come down, and, and that's typical of all business at all time. And I think ultimately that's probably a good thing. Yeah. So David, in your book, Miracle Morning Millionaires, you talk about an interesting question posed to millionaires, kind of what's been the biggest drivers, right, to you to becoming a millionaire? Like what are the two or three things that most helped you become a millionaire? And I know Jace kind of talked about this lessons from your childhood, but what would you say it's been for you? Is it work ethic, luck, finding good opportunities? You were, you know, scared of being poor or a couple of things you mentioned in your book. What, I mean, what is it for you? 
Wow, this is a deep question. And honestly, behind every driven person, there's usually some kind of scar. I would say driving, you know, my childhood was very unstable because of all the moves. I had a Green Beret father who was extremely strict and really honorable and had a lot of integrity, but probably a little too confining for my spirit. So I always wanted freedom from that. Uh, I wanted to have control over my life. Uh, I think most of what I've done has been to create freedom and space. Ironically, once you get it, you find you're still working, which is kind of a psychological riddle I haven't figured out yet of why you keep, you know, pursuing and trying to build when you don't need to anymore. Uh, but for me, the primary drivers was to get away from um, feeling confined or encapsulated and to create stability through financial resources. The other thing I think for me is I just always enjoyed working. So I hated school. I didn't like the teachers having control of me, but my first job was bagging groceries. I tried to be the fastest gro- bagger in the store. I got fired for insolence, but I'm I was shocked when they fired me because I thought I was such a good bagger, which I probably was, but I was just a little bit mouthy. And then, you know, I, was a, I wasn't a tiny little kid, so I don't think it's Napoleon complex, but I certainly was little. So it might have been a little bit of that trying to push back. Maybe it's just that, you know, my dad kept me so tight that I once I got out of his reign, I, other adults didn't really intimidate me and I tended to mouth off. And then secondly, just luck for sure. When I talked to Richard Branson, I mean, I was lucky enough to hang out with Richard Branson on Necker Island. I paid money to be there. It's not like he's my friend and invited me, but I paid money and I got there and I went up to him and I said, uh, I was just talking. He said, you know, people say I'm lucky. I said, why is that, Sir Richard? He said, because I got out of the record business right before it tanked and got into the airline business. And I said, oh, that's cool. And he said, but you know, the truth is I did get lucky, but the only way you win in life is you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky. So I've been lucky many times. I got lucky at Keller Williams. I got lucky that when my dad retired, my mom became a realtor at a company that ended up becoming the number one real estate company in the world. My mom had a great work ethic, a lot of integrity also. So it was really good to have her as a mentor. And then I went out and opened 15 franchises when I had no idea what I was doing. And when the company got stronger, I got the benefit of that. And then in the downturn, when I was scared that I was losing my revenue base and I went and bought all those assets, I got incredibly lucky again because the market turned so hard that even if you made a bad acquisition, you did well because the market came up so quickly. So that was my second lucky break, if you will. Uh, So I think the only way you win in life is with some luck and you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky. And if you're working for the man and you don't invest in anything, how do you ever position yourself to get lucky? So those are two of them. The thing you're not sharing too also is that you took a chance on a company that wasn't well known at the time, right? So sure, there was a little bit of luck, but you were also kind of taking a chance probably at the time. Yeah, I think I went all in. Like I really, I'm pretty good at going all in on stuff. Um, I recently, I've had a couple of failures too. I lost a million bucks on a business. I've lost two million on another business. But I don't really care about that. I think you have to have a certain risk tolerance. I used to be afraid of my risks that I was taking. And now I'm always afraid that I'm not taking enough risk, or at least that was my mantra for a while. Like you have to go all in on something and take a chance on something, especially when you're young. One of your questions, I think, was if you were young, like if you're young and you don't have kids, you don't have responsibilities, it's dumb to go work in a job that provides security for you. In my opinion, unless that's what you want, like I said, I'm not here to judge you know, what to want. And sometimes I think the smartest guys just make their 80, 90,000 a year and have their weekends and enjoy whatever their hobbies are and have a great life with great vacations. But if you want financial freedom, you've got to take those chances. It's, it's, you don't have to, it's wise to take those chances early. So go to the startup that you think has a chance, uh, go, go all in on yourself and start buying, you know, single family and using sweat equity to fix them up or, you know, go work for the entrepreneur that, you know, pays you half what you could have got working in the, in the private sector, in a, normal job, but you get to be around entrepreneurial mindset. One of my luckiest breaks, frankly, was just being with Gary Keller when he had a, you know, hardly any agents and he was doing all the coaching himself. And I get to be in a classroom with 15 people being coached by this incredibly intense 
future billionaire as he went through his journey of learning and discovery. So I got to sit on the front row seat and just absorb all of that. So, you know, I was in the presence of a 10 figure guy uh, on my, my one to 10 scale, a 10 guy and just be there as he went, you know, he's 36 and I'm 26 and just kind of ride along shotgun with him and pick up all those lessons. So you, you, uh, you, you have to be lucky, but you have to go all in on something. I, I think you should only be learning, working for knowledge or equity. And the only reason you should be working for a paycheck is if the paycheck's big enough to go buy equity. So if you got a great job working somewhere and you can take that money and invest in real estate, I, I was coaching a kid this morning. He works for uh, as a compliance officer for a very large like Fidelity or Vanguard. I'm not quite sure what makes a couple hundred thousand a year, and he's up to 14 properties already. And his 14 properties are giving him a cash flow. I forgot. I think it was like 60 grand a year. And he was advising, asking my advice on what to do to how to take that to 50. Um, that's a reasonable reason to work for the man. But otherwise, you should be working for knowledge or equity. So what's equity? You go work at Yahoo or you go work at, I don't know, you know, at Google and you get paid a bunch of money for that. But by the way, that's risky because nine out of 10 businesses fail. And then what's the other thing? You work for knowledge. So you go, uh, Jim Rohn, one of my favorites, quit his job and took like a, a big pay cut. I can't remember the percentage to go work for Nightingale Conan so he could be around the motivational speaking concepts and knowledge that ended up making his career. And Jim Rohn for me is uh, possibly the greatest speaker and teacher of all time for the best price for sure. Cause you can buy his art of exceptional living for like 49 bucks online. And it's amazing. David, you kind of bring up an interesting point about risk management and the risks you've taken and going all in. How has risk management changed over the years as you've grown your wealth? And as you kind of look through a different lens that you do now, maybe than when you did when you were 30 and growing your companies? Yeah. So that's a great question. And uh, the answer is now I feel really good about where we are on a risk tolerance basis. Cause I'm like a cowboy. Often it's, shoot ready aim you know you shoot first and then you're trying to dig yourself out of the problems you got yourself into and that's i think very entrepreneurial in go abundance where we have 200 guys i would say 90 percent of them are shoot ready aim right so we just go 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 by the way that was a learned behavior for me i remember at the beginning i'd be freaking out and over analyzing my i'm gonna buy this duplex oh my gosh should i buy it shouldn't i buy it like i'd have massive analysis paralysis but as you get more confidence you become like ah screw it let's just do it like you know that's richard branson's motto screw it let's do it and then as you get wealthier, you know, Warren Buffett says rule number one is to uh, not lose any money. And rule number two is to see rule number one. So today we're more prudent. But what I'm most excited about is I've been able to hire a guy to work for me who's my chief investment officer, who's incredibly intelligent, you know, master's degree in, in uh, finance with a specialty in real estate. And he really obsesses about never losing money. So he analyzes things, slices and dices it. He's already he's worked for me for just under a year now. And he's already said, well, yeah, under a year, he's, he's already said no, probably to nine deals I would have said yes to. So I think when you get to greater and greater wealth, you, you chase lower overall returns and just eliminate the loss of capital because losing capital is a disaster. So you think about the million bucks I lost in a business I started, and that was, I think I lost it around 07, 08. If I'd had that million dollars to invest, I mean, I probably tripled everything from 9, 10, and 11. So that, that million that I lost is probably three, it would be three or four million by now, at least. So, and then I had to pay taxes to earn that million. So to get that million that I lost, I had to earn 1.4 million above the top line. And, and so you go back in time, how much was I earning back that? What percentage of my net worth was it? And it's just, it's just amazing the damage that losing capital can do. But I don't know how you get ahead thinking that way. Like if you want to get 
big ahead. You've just got to go all in. Uh, and so at some point you have to be willing to lose your capital. And I think as you get older, it's more about preservation than it is about accumulation and, and winning. So, uh, yeah, my, Mike's been a really good moderating force for me, very intelligent, but the game changes as you build wealth. If you keep going on all in all the time, you're eventually going to get busted out. And some guys do that. They go and bust out and then they rebuild and they start over, but it gets exhausting. And I'm older now. I got a family. I got kids. Um, so yeah, I think it shifts over time. So when you were younger, either late twenties, early thirties, mid thirties, and you were kind of starting these different businesses, how did, how did you decide how much to put into it? Did you keep some on the side or did you go all in on every business? I went all in on every business, but again, I had nothing to lose. I was 29 years old, 28 years old. I mean, I, when I started at 30, you know, I had minus 1500 net worth. I sold real estate for a while. I managed to buy a house and save 35 grand. I moved up to Dallas, started opening franchises and I had 35 grand. I remember one business I had was losing 5,000 a month. I was like, wow, I got seven months and then I'm out of business. And I'm, but I, you know, I had, my folks were not rich, but they would support me. They had money. They were probably at this point, not a millionaire, but they certainly had, they were making several hundred thousand a year. So they had money. I had other partners up there. You know, I had good experiences with getting other people to invest alongside me. So there was a lot of good things going on, but I went all in, all in, all in from really, um, probably 97 all the way till 2005, I guess, in 2006 even. So I was taking every penny I had and putting it in. And by the way, owning a franchise, there's another distinction in business. I would say, you know, owning a franchise does not make you an extreme entrepreneur. When I'm buying someone else's franchise, I'm buying their system. Sure, I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm like, I'm a junior entrepreneur, if that makes any sense. Gary Keller's creating, you know, he's creating the system by getting us all in a room and sucking all our ideas out and putting it into a process. But at the same time, that's the uber entrepreneur, in my opinion. And so some of the side job things I've created is more fully entrepreneurial. What you guys are doing is fully entrepreneurial with the podcast. But what I was doing was I was in somebody else's wake. And I don't think that's bad advice either. Like if you can go work for a Richard Branson or an Elon Musk or a, a, a Bill Gates, plenty of people do really well riding the wake of that 10 out of 10 business person. And they're not very many of those. Like there's a thousand billionaires, I guess, in the Forbes. I don't know how many there are in the world, but there's not that many. So so getting in someone's wake isn't that bad. So yeah, I was going all in on these franchises. And at first they weren't doing that well, but but I came on at a good time. So they'd already had a lot of failure. And when I came on, there was still a lot of failure, but it was beginning to turn. So I'm just opening up as many. And I, my job was actually to sell franchises, but I couldn't, I wasn't that good at selling them. So to keep my development schedule, I kept buying them. So it's again, it was just, I was just going all in to figure out how to win in any way I could. And again, today I'm super uber confident. Back then I was nervous, scared, you know, I, I almost had a nervous breakdown four years into this journey. Well, I did. I kind of like got shingles from stress and had a really uh, identity breakdown. That's my new term for it because I had to change my identity to become someone new to, to be the kind of guy that was able to get where I am. And so I did just, but again, I, I was 27. I had no kids at home. I had no real financial responsibilities. So it was very easy to go all in partially because of my personality as well, I suppose. Yeah. So so now or in the last five, 10 years or even as advice to others, do you recommend people starting their own thing or do you think it's wise to go buy an existing business or a franchise and just keep operating it? So a great life is made of a lot of really good decisions repeated over and over for a lifetime. A lot of small good decisions, right? So um, not drinking too much, for instance, or not screwing around on your wife or not 
making stupid business decisions are all good examples of good decisions. So when you ask me that, it's a very unfair question because I, you say, go buy a franchise. I don't know what they're looking at buying. What you want to buy is a franchise that has a likelihood of success. If you're buying a subway shop, I knew a guy that owns six subway franchises was making 120,000 a year, about 20 grand on average per each. And every time one of his employees didn't show up, he'd spend all day making sandwiches. So that doesn't seem to me like a really good business opportunity. Uh, if you'd have bought Orange Theory, which by the way, one of my employees went to an Orange Theory and called me up in Dallas. was like, we got to go buy these franchises. We originally, immediately reached out and they'd all been sold already. But if you bought a bunch of Orange Theories, you killed it. When I first played Top Golf, I left that building and called the number and said, hey, I want to buy a franchise because it was obvious to me. Again, I could have been wrong, but at that time I was like, this is going to win big. Then I found out they were all corporate owned. They're not franchises. They don't sell them, right? But those things kill it. But I also screwed up and I started a Spanish language school with a kid that I found that, you know, I, and he's a great employee, still works for me and I, I love the kid, but he worked for another company. They were making 600000 a year teaching English to uh, construction workers and stuff like that. And, um, the, the store was, he was only getting paid 60. So I brought him over. We started a culture axion and we lost a million bucks, but it was right before the downturn of 06, 07. So there's been a lot of stupid things I've done. If I were young, I would look at my options. And if the number one option, if I could see a brilliant up and comer that I could go work for, that's what I would do. Cause knowledge pays dividends for the rest of your life. So if you can be around a hard charging integrity based entrepreneur, I'm not looking for a saint, by the way, when I say integrity, but there's like crooks out there and shady people. You just want aggressive, you know, person that's feats both on the foundation of the right path. That's what I would do first. Secondly, if I could find a franchise opportunity that it was going to win, I would go all in for that. But 90% of franchises, just like 90% of businesses become more like a trap. They only become good at really uh, at scale. So like I know another guy that owns like 50 super cuts, three would be a disaster, but 50 work out. So something like that, I would go find the person that I can learn from. That would be my number one choice, the opportunity. And then the third one is real estate. I think real estate is the everyday man's way to wealth. You can go get your broker's license. You can sell enough homes to generate capital and then go buy homes and invest in real estate. I mean, I've got 100 single family homes that pay me half a million or more a year passive income. I love those assets. Like they're not going anywhere. They're not going to be disintermediated by tech. Uh, we provide good homes to people. We take care of them. They take care of our, our us as well and our mortgages. So my advice would be to look around, pay attention. Awareness is something to cultivate, like being aware of what your options are, what the best choices are. Being around winners will make you a winner. I don't know who it was that said you are the sum of the five people you hang out the most with. But for sure, for me, it's been about finding great, a driven, accountability-based people and being around them. We wrote Tribe of Millionaires to sort of emphasize that effect. If I hadn't been around Gary Keller as a young man, I don't think I'd be who I am today. If I hadn't been around Pat Hyben and Tim Rode, my peer partners for 20 years, I wouldn't have the financial freedom I have today. So I would look at all of that. I would. I went to Tony Robbins. I walked on fire. I read the books. I read to Robert Kiyosaki, became a disciple of him for a while. Love the Cashflow Quadrant. It's one of the greatest game uh, books and games of all time. You know, and then, yeah, yeah, just try to be around winners. That's, you know, the, be around people that are making stuff happen and then making stuff happen becomes second nature to you. And this is from a guy that was a procrastinator, played Dungeons and Dragons, wasn't a great athlete. A lot of times athletes have an advantage because they're used to using that discipline of sport to get themselves to the next level. But I, I found my <laughs> way by attaching myself to people and then, a, and then absorbing their traits, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, and let's talk about it a little bit. So you mentioned you went to Necker Island, Richard Branson, Gary Keller, right? You got you kind of followed some of these other people. I mean, and what's the best way to do it? Is it connecting with people? Is it podcasts? Is it books? Is it a little bit of everything? And a little bit of yeah. And it's then pod- what about podcasts for sure? I wish they'd had then when I was a kid. When I was a kid, we had to have these tapes. So I was always rolling around with these cassette tapes. Look, there's a way of thinking, and I, I interrupted you, so I want to hear your question. But there's a way of thinking that wins, and the only thing you need to do to win is adopt that way of thinking, and that sounds easy, but it's not easy because you have to drop all the ways of thinking that don't win. So all your stupid thoughts that you've got, all your victim thoughts, all your I'm not good enough thoughts, all the crap that gets into you from childhood, you got to drop that and you got to replace it with what wins. And that is really the journey of success right there. And the best way to do that is to be around people that win or that around people that have adopted the similar philosophies and, and listen to the podcast and read the books and Become the person that wins and you'll win. Yeah. The only other piece of that was was getting rid of the people in your life that kind of bog you down or that don't fulfill you, don't lift you up. Yeah. And that's hard. So when I, I quit playing Dungeons and Dragons around 20, I guess, or 19 or something like that. And I remember some of the guys I used to play with, you know, they kind of reached out to me. And now keep in mind, these are like middle-aged guys that sit around smoking weed all the time and don't really do anything. And they had jobs and they were good guys. I liked them and I loved the game for a while. And then one day I just decided to quit and stop playing it and, you know, move on. You know, chicks don't dig people that play Dungeons and Dragons. So I wanted to have some kind of dating life. And, um, yeah, one of them, I remember sat down with me and he handed me a card and it said the little people. And I don't know what it was, like a tree company or something. He goes, this is how you're making me feel. And I'm like, ouch, that really hurts. Like, I'm not trying to make you feel little. What I'm actually trying to do is choose more in my life. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to like expand my life, you know, and it, it, it was sad, but I had to shed a lot of relationships around that when I let that go. And, you know, I have no hard feelings, still have love for the people, but you got to keep moving forward. If you're choosing more, if you're choosing to grow as a human being, you have to find the right environment to be in. So I went into a mastermind with a guy called Fred Gross. It was a bunch of top agents around the country. And then we built Go Abundance and wrote the Tribe of Millionaires books just to create and establish this sort of cultural tribe where winning is normal, meaning Great health, being a great dad, being a great husband, giving back to causes that matter, uh, learning continuously and having financial freedom are all just the way it is. And by the way, that's how I think it should be for as many people as possible. And that's really the kind of the foundation America was built on is this idea that you could be free financially and build the life you want to live. And that is possible for every single person listening to your podcast. It's just it's just a journey. It takes work and it takes commitment. David, you bring up winning and, and having kind of a winning culture in your life. What are you doing now to instill those principles in a winning culture in your home and with your children? You know, that's such a great question. Again, it's so hard when you have so much wealth. Like we had no money as a family. I mean, we were military, so we're probably the middle of the middle class. But I, I remember dad told me once he made like $200 a month or $250 a month. But we had military housing, and so the housing was free, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing we do is try to focus on our goals a lot. So we have family goal setting sessions. We have a giant poster board where we sit and talk about our family values. We're in a group called Fambundance, which is, again, where we try to teach the entrepreneurial ideas to our kids. One thing that's very important is my kids always treat everybody with respect. So I have them look at the waiter in the eye, make their own order, say thank you when the food comes. Um, I think if nothing else, learning to treat everybody with respect is something I can instill in them. And my kids are so far very good at that. I don't know what whether I can get all the ingredients in them to make them. My oldest daughter, by the way, who I had, you know, it's a whole 
story there. She's 31 years old, but she is um, a therapist in, in, in Denver and works with some of the most mistreated people and really does an amazing job healing the world. She has a huge heart and is a wonderful person. Um, she's never going to be the next Bill Gates or she's not going to be a business tycoon, but she will she will be making an impact on the world through what she does. She's she's a beautiful soul and does work that I think the world needs. So uh, I've been we, we co-own a couple properties and, you know, that's been useful. So when she went to college to get her master's, we bought a five bedroom house and I and she managed four roommates all the way through college. That house is appreciated in value so much that it basically paid for her college, and she's a percentage owner of that. And and then we bought a second duplex in Denver where she VRBOs the the bottom half. So uh, she's going to know real estate. She'll know it well enough. But you know, if she loved real estate, she'd come to me and say, "Hey, Dad, I want a hundred of these." But she doesn't. She's built her therapy practice. That's what she loves to do, and I totally respect that and support that. So uh, the way I did it with her is just by getting in business with her in that five bedroom unit, she kind of was forced to learn how to deal with roommates and deal with people not paying rent and deal with people that skip out on their bills and deal with maintenance issues and all the good and the bad that comes from real estate. So she's kind of had a forced crash course. Uh, but with my younger ones, I'm just trying to teach them to teach people with respect and have goals and have purpose in life. So you, you mentioned goal setting with your family and I know, you know, you're huge on goal setting and I think you're probably the best person I've ever heard talk about goal setting and kind of that process and how intentional you are about it. So we just kind of overview how you go about goal setting and, and kind of the buckets you set your goals in. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's eight gardens of life. And yes, I am obsessed about goal setting. What I what I found was kind of my way through my foggy lack of motive, you know, feeling like a procrastinator, feeling uncertain what to do. Over time, what I found was setting goals gave me my purpose. And what I found about wealthy people is they're purposeful. So I've never met a wealthy person who built a business who isn't massively purposeful meaning they know what they're trying to do each year, each week, each month. So they're always directing their lives somewhere. And what I found was there's the emptiness of uncertainty. And then, and then I took these classes and I did the, you know, the, the Tony Robbins stuff. I actually listened to a great tape series from Nightingale Conan that I don't think the speaker was famous at all, but it was all about goal setting. So I started writing my goals. Gary Keller taught me about goal setting too, with his, what would you, what would have to happen in the next two years for your two years to be amazing. And so I started writing stuff down and I found that when I wrote stuff down, I got them like, you know, even if not paying attention to them, I'd write down 20 goals and a year would go by and I'd have gotten 10 of them. So over time, this light bulb came on and Fred Gross taught the same thing about getting three commitments done that I can basically have anything I want in life. I can write a script or architect my own life. I can design my own life. All it requires is for me to go sit down, think in a peaceful, serene setting by a waterfall or someplace I love, maybe a Starbucks, whatever, and just uh, write down, okay, it's the what's coming up for 20, 2020. Like 2020 is about to be here. What would I like to have happen? And I just kind of free flow my thoughts. I write down as many things as I can. And all through the year when watching movies or listening to a speaker, I write down things that inspire me. And then I add them to this goal sheet. And this goal sheet has about 70, 80 goals in it. One half of it is all my business goals. And that's business by business. So over on that side, I've probably got 40 goals. And then I probably, so there's probably 80 goals total, 40 personal, maybe even more nowadays. And, and so then the gardens of life for me are relationship, family, which are my kids and my wife, a spiritual contribution, which is, you know, being a more wholesome person and giving stuff away, my health, intellectual, which is personal growth, lifestyle and adventure who I hang out with, which I call my tribe, um, and then my personal financial goals. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then my eighth one is just business. So those are the gardens. 
so as I found this journey out that I could have whatever I want, if I just paid attention to it, what I found is if I wrote my goals down and then I read them on a regular basis, I got more of what I chose, right? So it's become now I read it about a hundred times a year, twice a week, probably I go through every single goal and it's just been this positive reinforcing loop in wealth. Can't wait. We talk about vicious cycles, but then we talk about virtuous cycles. So a vicious cycle is when your life spirals out of control, but a virtuous cycle is when things get better and better and better and better, like investing in your first property. And now suddenly you're at the hundredth property and they've all done pretty well. You've had a few bust outs, but 80, 90% have done well. And the same is true of my goal setting. So the reason I'm obsessed with it now, and this has been a journey of 20 plus years, again, 24 years, as long as I've been in business, I've been learning about and setting goals. And I was so poor at it at first. I'd literally write a goal down and not think about it for a year. I'd like find a piece of paper. I'm like, oh yeah, there are my goals. Or I'd go, and then I got a peer partner in Pat Hyben, which is my partner in Tribe of Millionaires in GoBundance. And he he began holding me accountable. And so I added accountability. And, and we'd still have six, nine months where we'd forget to call each other, you know, at the beginning of this journey. But then we never quit on each other. So there's one theme in my life is I've never quit on me, meaning I never decided to mail it in. And I've never quit on uh, Pat Hyben, my peer partner, who then we added Tim Rode, who brought the health and adventure component into it. And so I got this virtuous cycle going on my goal setting to where now I realize I can, you know, there's this divine aspect of life that could change everything tomorrow. I'm not stupid. I'm aware that God could give me a disease or a giant two by four. Like I read about this family, they're driving in Minnesota and a crossbeam fell on the car and killed everybody. Well, what you can't, that's life. You can't control that. That could happen at any time. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to control my life. I'm trying to co-create my life. I'm trying to engage fully with the process of creating the life that I want. And the reason I always start with relationship family is to make sure I have a great relationship with my wife and my kids because I'm so driven that if I'm not careful, certainly with my girlfriend before we were married, I would just get so into work that I would neglect that relationship, right? So so I put that first, and that's the first one I always talk about. So I make sure I have an epic vacation with my family every year. We're trying to make unforgettable memories, do things that challenge them. That's another thing with my kids is, you know, my, my daughter's 10. She can ski double blacks. She's not aggressive, by the way. She skis gently down the slope. She's not like point and go like some kids are, but she she can do double blacks. That will last her for a lifetime. When she's 20 years old, 30 years old, she can always get on the mountain and ski anything and she'll feel confidence from that. We did mountain biking for the first time this summer, downhill mountain biking. And she, she cried her eyes out for the first like 10 minutes, like streaming snot, eyeballs crying. And I'm like, we, we don't have to do this. She's like, no. And she would gave her time. She got patient and then she did it. And by the end of the second run, she's like, I love this. This is amazing. It's my new favorite thing. So the same is true of life. Like if you don't, if you're not careful, work will squeeze all the good stuff out. So we put in an epic family vacation every year. I really work on my health and my workouts. I didn't used to be that good at that. I wasn't an athlete, but now I work out 240 times a year, five times a week, ride my Peloton. Um, we're just finishing a 30 day, no sugar, no alcohol kick. My wife and I did together. Uh, so I just kind of journal all this stuff out, have the date nights. It, it, it can be hard a little bit with a relationship because your wife, you know, you, you want to, you want it to be genuine. And sometimes it's like, oh, are you just doing this to check off your goals? I'm like, yeah, maybe I feel that way a little bit. Let me, let me refocus, get centered and try to make this really meaningful. But she understands me too. And she understands where it comes from is a good, meaningful place. Uh, you know, things I've added is lifestyle adventure. I didn't get this at first. I used to just try to live below my means. So that meant living cheap. But I've come to realize as I've gotten older that having a car you love actually gives you energy. Having a life you love gives you energy that going on a amazing backpacking trip down the Grand Canyon feeds you a reason to keep growing and building your body and your business and your life. So you want to pour like positive experiences in. So you're fired up and motivated about taking on the next level who you hang out with the environment tribe is like key it's probably the number one thing and i've 
you know, I've just been weeding people out that are negative Nellies and no can do's and trying to be with yes can do's and positive people that add to my life. And I've been very blessed by life that uh, more and more people show up. Uh, giving back is another thing I consciously do. I'm, I'm not a highly religious person. I'm just kind of spiritual. I, I just like to believe in karma or what you put out, you get back. So I try to give away money and I've never found a cause where it's been like the next thing for me to put the shoes on the people that have no f- shoes or something like that. Uh, but what I do is just write a check. I try to give away 350,000 bucks a year currently. And I'm just, oh, I'm just trying to step that up. I th- I did 350 last year. My goal was 250. So I'm trying to step that up. It was over time. Uh, you know, so it's just all these things have fed into this virtuous cycle where now I have a pretty spectacular life. I even moved into a neighborhood because I could live near Hal Elrod and and some other friends of mine that have kids the same age as my kids. I'm an old dad, so they're all like 10 or 15 years younger than me. But we've got this incredible pod now of eight adults and 10 kids between two and 10. And we all get to hang out together. They're all entrepreneurs. Um, all of our kids are in the same environment, pretty wealthy parents with uh, every single one of them. Actually, the mom is a stay at home mom and the dad's have built businesses. All of them have passive income of different levels. So all of this has just been a conscious building of a tribe and an environment that that comes from my goals and my goal setting. So yeah, of course, I'm addicted to it because I find I get amazing outcome from choosing and co-creating my life. Yeah, I love it. And if, if you're interested, again, you can get that at thegoaltemplate.com. That's right, right, David? Yeah, that's good memory. So thegoaltemplate.com, we give away the free version of the template. Uh, we talk a, a lot about it and we'll can't wait. But if you, oh, by the way, for your listeners, if they go to hypermillionaires.com, they can get the book for free. You just got to pay shipping and handling as well. So we're giving away that new book. So what are you excited about now? Where do you kind of go from here? What's on the agenda for you? So really being a dad, it's funny. I, I mean, I don't know there are phases in life, but right now in my early fifties, I'm kind of transitioning away from just chasing the rabbit and more into really pouring into my kids like you discussed, which you have to be careful of. If you try too hard, you'll Like anything in life, you want to put the effort in without caring too much about the outcome. By the way, in business, that's been one of my strongest developments is I used to really care a lot. I almost think that screws stuff up. You have to put in best efforts and be unconnected to the outcome. And then you sleep better. You don't, you don't go crazy. Just put in your best efforts, be wise, be purposeful. And so with my, my life where I'm at right now, it's just, I'm aware that I'm at this summit that the, at 70, I'm not going to be physically stronger, faster, more motivated. And that's only, you know, less than 20 years away. So what I'm trying to do is pour into my children, pour into my friendships, pour into my environment, pour into the new leaders that I have coming into my business, make sure I've got up and comers that have an economic opportunity to win through my world so that the business will have legs, perpetuity. And then I'm still challenging myself. I have a private equity firm that's very interesting to me. It's very complex and and super fun. I've gotten to hire incredibly smart people to work in that firm, which is also very interesting. So it's pouring into my family, having an amazing life, adding more vacations, taking more time off while continuing to manage, build, grow and develop and expand my my business world, my business empire, all through the talent that's rising and emerging. Well, good for you. And and, and just last question, people are probably sitting here like, oh, wow, this guy's intense and he's focused and he's driven. Are, Are you always this way? I mean, do you still do you procrastinate? Do you sleep in? Do you watch a TV show or is this or is this the real you all the time? I'm super purposeful now. I'm, I mean, I've just I'm probably one of the most purposeful people I know, but I will say that I work a lot less. I golf a lot. I, I don't, I'm not a huge TV watcher anymore, but I, when I was a kid, I played massive amounts of video games. The, the, the better distinction is where I was. And, and if you looked at me at 25, 26, 27, when I was starting this journey, 
I wasted so much time, man. I would, I gave up Dungeons and Dragons, but I kept playing video games and I'd be like working in the day. Then I'd get onto like EverQuest was a game we had back then. And I'd play it till three o'clock in the morning. And then I'd be exhausted the next day. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what path to choose. I'd come up with 50 great ideas for, for my business and do none of them or do three of them really half-assly. Uh, I was bad at hiring. I wasn't a good leader. I felt anxious and I'd lay awake at night with insomnia, uncertain about the choices I was making. So, so yes, today I'm a pretty productive person. I'm pretty focused and I'm pretty capable. Uh, but where I was, wasn't. And sometimes when I'm giving advice to, to young kids that are struggling, I, I have to physically remind myself and try to get back into the shoes of the kid I was and, and just remind them either the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I remember this is one of the things I held on to is the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, a step in the right direction, a step towards your goals, a step towards your destiny. And now I'm at the 9,000th step. So it's so funny. I'm, this is the first time I put this together in my head. So yes, now it seems kind of easy, effortless, like I've got the dials set right. But I remember at the beginning when I was taking the first few steps, that gave me hope, this idea that at some point in the future, I would become the kind of man I am today. But back then it felt so terrifying and I felt so lost and I felt so uncertain. So, you know, I remember just holding on to that, that idea, the, the, the road, the bloom that blooms latest blooms longest or the story of the ugly duckling, the idea that I felt so awkward, incompetent and incapable, but all these stories that if I just hung in there long enough at some point, I would become who I needed to be to feel some sense of mastery and comfort over life. And I've become that after walking 9,000 steps on this journey of self-discovery, listening to the podcast, being in the environment of people that are motivated and fired up, reading the books, you know, trying to absorb the lessons that if you absorb them will make your life a success. And Jim Rohn says best, you know, the Bible, again, I'm not super religious, so I'm not preaching to you guys, but he says a beautiful description of the Bible. The Bible is full of stories. And some of those stories are of things to do to get what you want what you want out of life. And some of the stories are things not to do. You know, the guys that have disasters in the Bible, just make sure when they write your story, it's, it's one of the stories of the things you should do to have an amazing life. And that's the way I've tried to live. And, you know, currently so far, touch wood, it's turned out pretty good. Awesome. Well, hey, David, we're taking enough of your time. It's David Osborne, everybody, author of the new book, Tribe of Millionaires, also Miracle Morning Millionaires and Wealth Can't Wait. Thanks so much, David, for coming on the show. Thanks for being with me, Clark and Jace. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, David. You bet, guys. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.